Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening, Dr. William Marshner, received his Master of Arts degree from Dallas University and his licentiate and doctorate in sacred theology from the John Paul II Institute in 1977, when I was just two years old. <laughs> Dr. Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and has since served continuously as professor of theology. He's a well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church. Dr. William Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. He speaks regularly at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Dr. William Marshner. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Seed of wisdom, pray for us. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. My topic tonight is the dispute about the possession and veneration of images of sacred things in Christian hands. And the most important thing for you to know about it is that there was not so much as a whisper against pictures in church for the first 300 years of Christianity. 300 years without a protest of any kind. Mm -hmm. If you're not sure about that, all you have to do is visit the catacombs in Rome. And there you will see depictions on the walls. Some of them are symbols of Christian things, like the anchor, the dove, the fish, the lamb for the Lamb of God. Yeah. Others are illustrations of our Lord's parables. So we see depictions of the Good Shepherd, we see depictions of the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches, and pictures of, uh, oh yes, the wise and foolish virgins. Okay, next, you see pictures of important Old Testament figures drawn on those walls. Noah is represented in his ark because the ark was a symbol of the church in which there is salvation. If you're not on the ark, you're drowning somewhere. Hmm? And then the prophet Daniel. Why the prophet Daniel? 
Well, he had these wonderful visions, one of which is mentioned by St. Peter uh, in his famous speech at Pentecost. Um, our Lord, um, Daniel's vision of one like the Son of Man coming to the Father enthroned in heaven was seen as a prophecy of the enthronement of our Lord after his resurrection, his enthronement as the King of Heaven. Very important point. Where was the Messiah supposed to reign? The Jews all said, well, Jerusalem, of course. But the prophet Daniel suggested another answer. He's not going to reign in Jerusalem. He's going to reign in heaven. Huh? So Daniel is pictured. Jonah, the prophet Jonah. Why Jonah? Three days in the belly of the whale, corresponding to three days in the tomb for our Lord, right? And finally, Moses. Moses striking the rock. Hmm? Was he supposed to strike the rock? No, he wasn't. But the idea was to get water from the rock to sustain life in the desert. Well, Christ is our rock from whose struck side comes the water of baptism. Yes? Okay. Those Old Testament figures all drawn, pictured on the walls in the Roman catacombs. And I'm not talking about any picture made later than the year 300. There are later ones from after 300. These are all older. And finally, pictures of our Lord. Yes. Depictions of our Lord depictions of his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, depictions of the saints, especially the Apostle Peter, and lots of others. Now then, this quiet acceptance inside Christianity of depictions of sacred persons, sacred scenes, sacred events, has to surprise one. It has to surprise one because these developed in the teeth of late Jewish opposition to any sort of representation whatsoever. Okay. Now let's go back a minute and look at the conduct of Moses. If anybody is supposed to be the great prophet and teacher against idolatry, surely it's Moses, right? Giver of the commandment they're concerning. Well, Moses, at God's command, caused images of, uh, well, statues of winged beasts called the cherubim to be made and placed over the ark. Yes. Moses also, at God's suggestion, made that famous brass bronze, bronze serpent, 
as a sign of healing, huh? You can read all about it in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verse 3. Okay? Now, in the same vein, look at the conduct of King Solomon. Remember, David wanted to have a temple built. Didn't get to it in his lifetime. The honor fell to his son Solomon. Okay? And nobody thought anything of it when Solomon caused to be depicted on the walls of the first temple images of lions, palm trees, and other suitable subjects. All right, this is just decorative art. And nobody thought there was anything wrong with it. So in other words, the commandment not to make a graven image of your divinity so as to give yourself a corporeal looking thing to worship was not interpreted as some sort of blanket prohibition of all representational art. Okay? You have to kind of wait for the stupidity of Islam before things come to that point. I remember one time we were selling a house. We had a, a townhouse in Gaithersburg. And uh, on the lower floor, you came in, and uh, there was wallpaper. We had, I guess we had put it up, I forget. The wallpaper showed birds. Birds and branches and tendrils of vines and whatnot. Birds! Big whoop! Well, the guy who finally bought our house was a Pakistani. Muslim fellow. Did he care about the birds? No. Oh, but his wife. <laughs> she very observant Muslim. Oi, my husband, this room we cannot pray in. Oi. Mere decoration. If it isn't geometric, you can't have it, says Islam. But Judaism uh, in the old days was not that way. When did a change and a stricter discipline about things enter Judaism? Answer, pretty late. The change came in the time of the Maccabees. You all remember the Maccabees, right? We have some deuterocanonical books about them, first and second Maccabees. They were waging war against a uh, Hellenistic uh, king, emperor, who had ideas about introducing an image of Zeus into the temple in Jerusalem. Well, needless to say, that had to be resisted. And uh, the succeeding warfare hardened Jewish attitudes to a considerable extent. So that in the aftermath of uh, the Maccabean Revolt, we read about some uh, disorderly conduct by the citizens of Jerusalem. King Herod. I know you're not fans of King Herod, 
But wait a minute, don't be so judgmental. King Herod did build him a nice new temple, didn't he? Yeah. And over the gate, the main gate, to this nice new temple, he mounted a golden eagle. The citizens of Jerusalem ripped it down. Okay? No more decorative art anywhere near the temple. Josephus tells us a story about successive, uh, what do you want to call them, embassies of citizens of Jerusalem who came to Pontius Pilate. Yeah, that Pilate. Came to Pilate to protest the fact that Roman legions were bringing their standards with them into the city. Every legion had a standard. Right? On top of the standard was an eagle. Now, I mean, if you want to stretch it, okay, the, the standards were subject to a certain amount of veneration in the legion. Not much more veneration than we would really pay to the flag that was carried at the head of our marching column. But a certain amount of veneration, and the Jews wouldn't have it. You keep those birds outside of Jerusalem. <laughs> yes. So there was quite a fierce attitude against representational imagery in late Judaism. All the more surprising, therefore, is the fact that there was not a peep about it in the early church. Okay? Now, when I say not a peep, I mean barely a peep. You have to make some exceptions for um, hardline rigorists like Tertullian. Okay. Tertullian was, by profession, a Roman lawyer, and he was mean as a junkyard dog. Okay. And he wrote a book on idolatry. Okay. Now, Tertullian hardly ever saw conduct by ordinary Christians that he thought was good enough. Right. Right. Your venerating image. I bet you're idolaters. I bet you are, said Tertullian, the mega grouch. But nobody took it seriously. And Tertullian himself admits that there were depictions of sacred scenes and things on church objects. Um, uh, pictures of our Lord as the Good Shepherd were all over the chalices that were used at Mass in Tertullian's day. Okay? Oh, and by the way, do we have anybody in here who likes to pray like this during the Lord's Prayer? That was how they did it in Tertullian's day. Huh? I know, very impractical. You're going to have a lot of room between you. <laughs> That's why it goes like this. But anyway, um, yeah, it was the custom. And Tertullian um, is quite a good witness to early liturgical practices. Um, St. Basil tells us that he had seen depictions of all sorts of things 
on the walls of churches, Our Lord, Our Lady, the Saints, and so on. So it, it was known, and nobody really complained about it until the year 305. Okay? In that year, there was a little bitty local council in Spain called the Council of Elvira. E-L-V-I-R-A, like the woman's name. Okay? And this little council put out canon number 36, saying that um, it pleased the council that pictures should not be present in the church lest what is worshipped and adored should be depicted on the walls. My translation of Elvira's Latin. Lest what is worshipped and adored should be depicted on the walls. Okay. Did this council provide a judgment that was accepted throughout the church? No. It was never heard of anywhere but in Spain. And even there, it didn't last long. Okay. Apparently, there were a few bishops in Spain at that time who thought that people were tending towards superstitious practices, and so it would be better to go this way, but they weren't backed up. So this is an anomalous episode. You like that? Anomalous episode. All right. Now then, I want to come down to the time of the Emperor Constantine. And it was under his reign that that important event, the Council of Nicaea, was held. And that was what year? 325, thank you very much. I'll come back to that date. Anyway, the Emperor Constantine had a sister. Probably more than one. But anyway, this sister was named Constantia. Parents didn't seem to have much imagination about it. <laughs> Her name was Constantia. And as you know, the Emperor had just uh, converted to Christianity, saw that sign in the heavens and so on, and um, converted uh, in a way, to Christianity. I mean, he wasn't exactly a deep Christian. But, it was... Hey, which of us is? I'm about as shallow as a Christian gets, I think. But anyway, Constantine had his, had his theological problem. Well, his sister wanted a picture of the risen Christ. Hmm? And Constantine had a favorite bishop, Eusebius of Caesarea, who had been active at the Council of Nicaea and who subsequently wrote a wonderful panegyric on the Emperor Constantine. So he said, Sis, write to, Caesar, write to uh, Eusebius of Caesarea. So she did. Could I please have a picture of the risen Christ? And Eusebius wrote back, a very interesting answer. His answer was no. You can't have that. And his reason was 
that the risen Christ was so transformed by the glorious resurrection that he could no longer be depicted. Okay? Well, that's interesting. Eusebius had no objection to pictures representing our Lord during his earthly life. But after the resurrection, he thought there would be something improper about it. So he told the emperor's sister, no. I don't know how the story ended, but he kept his head. And I guess, yeah, anyway. Uh, now, I don't want to accuse Eusebius of being an early precursor of an important error. But, there's a thread of connection between the answer that this famous bishop gave in about the year 326 to Constantia and the position developed by a later group of heretics called the Monophysites. M-O-N-O-P-H-Y-S-I-T-E-S. These are the one nature people. One nature. They developed an elaborate doctrine according to which the humanity of our Lord that he got from the Blessed Virgin and the divinity that he had eternally from God the Father were so fused together in our Lord that they kind of melted into one nature. So now you have all been taught, knock on wood, you have all been taught that if you ask the question, how many natures did Christ have, you say two, right? Well, the divine and the human, right? But the monophysites said no, not two, one. Okay. Now then, not surprisingly, given the reaction we've already met in Eusebius of Caesarea, the monophysites connected their theology to a strong unwillingness to depict our Lord. You want to depict, depict the Blessed Virgin? Fine. You want to depict the saints? Fine. But our Lord, no. On the ground that this strange hybrid divino-human nature was undepictable. Okay, we will find uh, some of this thinking uh, several hundred years later when I get to my main episode tonight. Anyway, the connection with monophysitism would eventually prove to be important. Now, monophysitism was officially quashed in the year 451, right? At the Council of Chalcedon. There you go. Okay, 451, Council of Chalcedon. Pope Leo the Great sends a famous dogmatic letter to the council. Everybody says, Peter has spoken through the mouth of Leo. It's a great, great story, great event. And I have to mention one more detail. 
about the Council of Chalcedon where, where this monophysite error was rejected and the insistence was that Christ had two natures, not separated, yet distinct and unblended. Okay? Not confused, unblended. Uh, the other incident, this little incident I have to mention, is um, um, a, uh, a miracle connected with the relics of St. Euphemia. She was E-U-P-H-E-M-I-A, St. Euphemia, which sort of means well-spoken. Yeah, Saint well spoken. Uh, girl's name, Euphemia. And um, I don't know. Why don't people have more imagination with girls' names these days? <laughs> Wouldn't anybody like to name a daughter Euphemia? You afraid she'd be picked on in school? Never mind. Euphemia. Um, the um, fathers of the council at one point during their debate resorted to the relics of this saint. They put the Tome of Leo and a monophysite statement into her tomb, okay, to see if anything would happen. And by the way, her body was found incorrupt. And sure enough, she was found the next day embracing the Tome of Leo and the heretical document under her feet. Yes. Okay. So, monophysitism was wrong. That means that our Lord has a complete human nature which does not conflict with his being divine because that's a different nature. He's got them both. And so he can be depicted in his humanity. What's the problem? Huh? All right. Now, I'm coming down a while. 451, all that settles out. Monophysitism is defeated everywhere except in Egypt. And uh, we come down to the year 700. And there was a funny incident in Spain. Okay? I told you there's almost no opposition to images in any churches, especially in the West. But there had been this little problem for a while in Spain. And about the year 700, in the city of Narbonne, the bishop installed an image of our Lord crucified. Now, I don't know what set people off about that. Perhaps they didn't see his suffering, but there was a riot. And the bishop finally agreed to put a veil over the image of our Lord suffering on the cross. All right. Then there was around the same time a bishop in Marseille. Wretched port city of Marseille, southern France, on the Mediterranean, a hive of scum and villainy. Isn't that how it goes in Star Wars? Anyway, pretty bad port city. And um, the bishop there was a man named Serenus, and he was 
uh, not only denouncing the veneration of sacred images, but also destroying some. Well, this conduct was reported to the Pope, who at this point was Gregory the Great. Gregory sent him a letter, said, look, I'm not going to try to second guess your pastoral concern about improper veneration, but you go way too far when you try destroying these things. These are sacred objects. All right, all got that? Now we come down to the year 718. Unpleasant events brought to the throne of the Byzantine Empire a man named Leo the Isaurian. Okay, think of Dinosaurian. Leave off the D and take out the N-O. Leo the Isaurian. He was a tough soldier virtually no education. But he got to the throne and founded a new dynasty and gave himself the sonorous title Basileus Tekaihiraus, king and priest. Okay? He wasn't about to admit any independence of the Eastern Church from his administration. It's about what that meant. And he began being a despot by temperament to persuade people to abandon altogether the sacred images. Don't use them. Don't venerate them. Put them away. Forget them. Where Leo the Isaurian, by the way, he's Leo III, the third on the throne of Byzantium. Where Leo III got these anti-image ideas is much disputed by scholars. Uh, my favorite explanation is, look, he's a soldier, right? For the first time, a fairly successful soldier against the Islamic hordes. Mm. So maybe he gets the idea from the Muslims. Eh? They won't tolerate any images. Maybe we'd win some battles if we were the same. However, there are other more scholarly explanations, and never mind which one is right. The fact of the matter is that there were remnants of monophysitism out in the eastern province of Isauria, where this chap came from. So, he decides that he's going to get rid of the images, and when persuasion didn't work, he resorted to force. One of the main things that motivated him to get completely rid of all the images in Eastern Christianity, well, the West too, if you could get there, if you could get to them, was that this was the obstacle to the conversion of the Jews. <coughs> well, guess what? Despite the veiling or uncovering or repudiation or whatever of the images, the Jews did not seem to want to convert. So, 
In the year 722, he seized every Jew in Byzantium and baptized them by force. Mm hmm. Tough soldier. Nobody monkeys with my decree. Yeah. And oddly enough, he had some bishops friendly to him. Three in particular, and you never heard of any of them, and I'm not going to trouble you with their names. Then in the year 725, he launched the official campaign against the Christian images. 725, remember that year, exactly 400 years after the Council of Nicaea. Right. 725. <clears throat> he launches this campaign. One of the bishops friendly to him was a guy named Constantine of Nacolia, who was in trouble with his metropolitan. So he fled the metropolitan, fled to Constantinople, and tried to win over the patriarch to the cause of repudiating the sacred images. Well, he didn't get anywhere because the patriarch at the time in Constantinople was Saint Germanus of Constantinople. Tough guy and absolutely unbendable in his orthodoxy. So, when sending friendly bishops to plead with Saint Germanus didn't succeed, the emperor decides persuasion doesn't work, it's time for force. So, in the year 726, Leo put out a decree declaring that all images, <coughs> all sacred images, are, quote, the idols formally condemned in Scripture. Okay? And the formal condemnation, of course, is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Right. Um, I guess more next week I will talk about the absurdity of this interpretation of Exodus chapter 20. Um, but for the moment, that was the emperor's ground. And he commanded that the images of the saints not just be hung too high for the faithful to reach, because Eastern Catholics are very good about kissing the icon. Yeah. But he only had them hung too high. He had them broken up. There was a famous uh, incident in which a bureaucrat named Jovinus got a ladder to take down the image of Christos Antiphonetes in one of the churches of Constantinople. He got up on a ladder so he could take it down and break it up with a hammer. The result was a riot. Very nice riot. So the emperor had definitely trouble on his hands. But the trouble wasn't only religious. You know, when you have the throne in Constantinople, there was always somebody with an army or a fleet looking at you, wearing your gold and your purple, and saying, hey, I'd look good in that outfit too. 
And so, immediately after those riots, a pair of admirals launched a rebellion. Um, Agaloni, Agalianos and Stephen were the two admirals. They sailed with a fleet against Constantinople. Unfortunately, when they got into the waters close to Constantinople, the fleet was defeated. And so, Leo III survived this attempted coup. And then he had what you have to call a piece of luck. The same kind of luck that that horrible Queen Elizabeth had. Remember the storm that destroyed? Yeah, uh huh. Yeah. And of course, you know, Elizabeth and her henchmen were always quoting the Bible. Oh, the Lord did blow with the wind and his enemies were scattered. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, well, in the Greek islands, north of Crete, there was a volcanic eruption that same summer, the summer of 726. And it was a huge affair, and it spread a lot of devastation over the Greek islands. And the emperor seized the propaganda opportunity. See? The wrath of God has been revealed against the idolaters. Where is the empire if we don't clean these guys out? Right. In the year 729, St. Germanus was placed under house arrest. His opposition was no longer tolerable. However, St. Germanus had some very interesting pen pals, one of whom was Pope Gregory II, <laughs> ah, who wrote a letter back to the emperor and said, look here, you interloper, if you don't release the genuine archbishop, you are under interdict. You're going to be excommunicated. Well, of course, Leo didn't like that. Two years later, Pope Gregory, this is still Gregory the Great. Well, he just died, actually. This is now his successor, Gregory III, year 731, calls a council in Rome. <coughs> And uh, here's what they said. If anyone hereafter despises the ancient uh, customs faithfully held by the Catholic Church, the Apostolic Church, and shows himself to be a destroyer or a remover or a blasphemer against veneration of the holy images of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, of his mother, the Immaculate and Ever-Virgin and All-Glorious Mary, of the holy apostles and all the saints, if he shows himself to be a disposer, a remover, destroyer, profanator, blasphemer against these, he's out. He is outside 
the body and blood of Christ. Hello, that's called excommunication. He's outside the body and blood of Christ. Indeed, he's outside the whole unity and fellowship of the church. Leo was not pleased. He decided to strike back. He tried to take away from the jurisdiction of the Holy See uh, bishoprics in uh, Illyria, that's along the coast of the Adriatic, and attached them to Constantinople. He seized revenues that were going to Rome from southern Italy. When the people, when the papal legate came to him and announced the result of that synod held in Rome, the emperor had the legate arrested and thrown into jail in Sicily. Then he even sent a fleet against Rome. And guess what? It sank in the Adriatic Sea. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, this time, of course, it wasn't the wrath of God. Oh, no, unhappy accident. <laughs> Aren't politicians wonderful? <laughs> All right. Then, mercifully, in the year 740, Leo died. So you'd think, all right, things are going to have to get better. Not so. I see a sign back there. Now, is that sign a max, or would you prefer me to shut up even sooner? All right, I, I'll go a little further, because i got plenty more dirt. <laughs> Unfortunately, the death of Leo brought to the throne his son, christened Constantine V. And apparently, as a baby, he had a bowel movement in the baptismal font and subsequently was given an unpleasant name, okay? We would say in decent English his name was Mud, but the Greek was a little more colorful than that. Anyway, he was determined to continue his father's policy, but first he had to put down another rebellion. His father-in-law, a general in the Byzantine army, raised up a standard of rebellion against him and seized Constantinople and drove the jerk out and restored all the icons and went to see the patriarch whom Leo had installed, a complete spineless weather vane named Athanasios, and uh, said, uh, guess what? There's been a change of regime here. The, image, the sacred images are coming back. And the bishop who had the previous week, the patriarch who the previous week had been saying, down with the images, now said, images, never saw one I didn't like. I'm your man. Absolute. Yeah, okay. Unfortunately, <clears throat> the general's uh, reign didn't last long. In 742, Constantine V, do you mind if I shorten him to Connie V? <laughs> Connie V recaptured Constantinople and put his father-in-law to death, of course, 
and was equally severe with Athanasios, the quote, patriarch, unquote. Even though Athanasios laid hold of the Holy Cross and said, Oh, hey, hey, swear I don't like images, it wasn't good enough. <coughs> the emperor could see uh, what his loyalty was worth. So he was done away with too. In 752, Connie V was really ready to continue his fight. And he got hold of a bishop named Theodosius Apsimar, A-P-S-I-M-A-R, if you want to know, Theodosius Apsimar, and said, look here, bishop, uh, you're going to call a council. You're going to convoke a great council, and we're going to answer the doctrine from Rome. We're going to put out the straight icon, anti-icon doctrine. Okay? So uh, Theodosius complied, and a uh, meeting of about uh, 300 bishops was called from the east. About 300 attended. Uh, nobody was there from the Patriarchate of Antioch. Nobody was there from the Patriarchate of Alexandria. Nobody was there from the Patriarchate of Jerusalem. And of course nobody was there from Rome, despite which the emperor declared his little council ecumenical. Okay. And it put out uh, a doctrinal decree and um, it's known in history as the pseudo-council of Hieria. H-I-E-R-I-A. Hieria was the name of one of the emperor's palaces. That's where he held the meeting. Okay. Clever Connie, Connie V, did not refill the patriarchal see once he had removed the head from the spineless Athanasios, who was now also headless. Okay. But did he replace him? No, no, no. Because he said to himself, let the bishops get in here. Let them all get in here and let them see that the patriarchal hat is available. And the ambitious ones will be loyal to me and him. And I'll get the man I really want. Well, I guess his friends weren't loyal enough because when the council was uh, in so-called council was in session he uh, installed somebody nobody ever heard of um, an ex-bishop from Pisidia you don't want to know his name nobody has ever heard of him he had no reputation in the church I guess what he was is pliable yeah now, this pseudo-council said, look, let me read you here what it said. If you try to represent the whole Jesus Christ, God, and man, then you circumscribe his divinity. 
and perforce confound the two natures. Why do you circumscribe his divinity? Because his divinity is everywhere. You're only showing his body, which is here. But you can't show the omnipresent divinity, and so you're circumscribing it. That's the argument. Huh? Or, you say, you're just drawing the humanity. And in that case, you are dividing what should be united. You are drawing a de-divinized body. And you're falling into Nestorianism. Dividing the two natures. Hmm. Okay. Then this council went on to say, there's only one true image of Jesus. It's the one he left us of himself, the Eucharist. Hmm. Nice pious touch there. And then they came out with their uh, disciplinary remarks. Would you like to venerate an image of the Virgin or the saints? No, not allowed. Those pictures are idolatrous. Hmm? However, um, you can still invoke them. Okay? The council admitted that invocation of the saints was okay and that their power to intercede was enormous. So you can pray to, to them, through them, but you can't picture them? Curious. Then they said, no church is to have any such image in it anywhere. <coughs> However, okay, here the council got cold feet. They were afraid of a Henry VIII type move by the emperor. Okay. <laughs> when Henry VIII uh, decided to despoil the monasteries, what did he do? Huh? There wasn't a valuable chasuble anywhere in England that he didn't strip of its gold, silver, diamonds, whatever was on it. <coughs> well, the council didn't want that to happen. So they forbade anybody to monkey with the images on the sacred vessels, like the chalices, on the priest's vestments, altar cloths, etc. But if it was on the wall, it was evil and had to go. <coughs> As you can see, there was not exactly a strong stream of logic in the work of this so-called council. Well, anyway, um, <clears throat> the emperor, meanwhile, was in a rage against relics. The council hadn't said anything against relics, but the emperor thought they were being namby-pamby. And he was in a rage against relics. He publicly threw relics into the sea, beginning with the relics of St. Euphemia. Mm -hmm. Right. He not only destroyed icons, 
But then he had churches repainted with scenes of birdies and landscapes. So the churches started to look like garden rooms. Come and worship in our conservatory. <clears throat> but it, it, it got crazier than that. He was also against all invocation. And he put out a decree forbidding anybody to use the word saint. In Greek, hagios. Okay? St. Peter, St. Paul, St. James. In Greek, that's all hagios. This guy, hagios, that guy. No, no, you can't use that word anymore. Strictly forbidden. If you use it, I'll cut your tongue out. Huh? Now this begins to sound a little bit more like Calvin's Geneva. Doesn't it? Uh-huh. Well, um... The word saint could neither be said nor written. <laughs> when the monasteries refused to obey, he forbade all use of the word monk. <laughs> yes. He decreed the death penalty for any religious superior who accepted novices. Hello, Geneva again. Well, to enforce all this, he started making martyrs. 342 monks were usually in the Praetorian prison. Okay, because that's how many cells. You could hold about 340 in there. And usually the, they were, the, the cells were filled and the monks were mutilated to various degrees. Some saints he didn't bother to mutilate. He had them sewn up in sacks and thrown into the ocean. Okay. Well, let's make a long and bitter story short. In the year 775, remember this date, September the 14th. Good day for a party. On September the 14th, 775, Connie V died. Yes. His son Leo IV didn't do much one way or the other. He was kind of, eh, maybe. Didn't do much and died himself five years later. Leaving the throne <coughs> to his son, <coughs> Connie VI. Okay. But wouldn't you know? Connie the sixth was all of six years old. So the reins of power really couldn't pass into his hands, could they? Instead, they were connected, collected by the emperor's widow, the mother of this child, okay? And her name was Irene. And she just loved the sacred images. And so, this hideous movement finally gets its comeuppance. Now, I'm going to talk next week about the steps taken by the Empress Irene, about the ecumenical council she called with the blessing and approval of Rome, Nicaea II, 
and what they said, the doctrine they taught, and so on and so on. I'm going to get into all of that next week. In other words, I've saved all the good news for next week. <laughs> this week has been the bad news and the nasty history. And um, I think it's delicious that uh, Constantine V left behind no one on the throne but this poor little kid. But can you imagine what the pillow talk had been like for the previous 20 years between Emperor Connie V and the Empress Irene? Okay? She could never... Hey, honey, let's pray together? I don't think so! She would have liked to invoke the Blessed Virgin. Something! My goodness. Life was hard in these political marriages. But anyway, the bastard was dead. The Empress had the throne. And orthodoxy was about to prevail. Why should it prevail? Tell you next week. Thank you very much. Okay, the Shroud of Turin, um, I believe it's in the area of Constantinople during this time period. Yes. Is it venerated and does it, how does it survive them, yes. this, uh, um, you know, attempt at relics and destroying relics? Like lots of other things, it was hidden. Okay. The, uh, the monasteries became uh, warehouses of hidden icons because nobody was going to leave them in church for the emperor to bust up sacred images were removed hidden the uh, emperor by the way decreed excommunication to anyone who hid an icon in his house mm -hmm. a little bit solemnist here that a religious picture in your house, up, off to the gulag with you. The Byzantine gulag, by the way, was in what's now Crimea. It was like a little prison colony up there, a nasty place. Was this, was this the only um, outcropping of iconoclasm, or, or just the major one? Were there any other minor any? I've mentioned all the ones, and they're so minor, they hardly deserve to be talked about. Okay? Um, there's absolutely nothing for the first 300 years. A ripple or two in the 4th century, nothing much. Um, uh, an event in Spain, in Narbonne, and that, that's it. And then this thing breaks, and, and it's completely unprecedented. This is, this is not a case of a heresy that can point to early Christian roots. Just not there. And uh, so, yeah, and now, um, I'm not going to tell you anything about this next week, but it is a fact that after the reign of the Empress Irene, the iconoclast staged a short comeback. Okay? But it didn't last long. Their back was broken, and the second time it was broken, it was broken for good. So, 
But uh, next week, all the theology and all the good news will be rolled into one talk. If you if you cover this next week, then you don't have to answer it now. But when the Calvinists and the Protestants started going after images, did they use the same arguments? Sure. Sure. No, not really. Uh, they they never made an argument as sophisticated as, oh well, gee, now if you depict. Uh, Jesus, are you depicting the whole Christ or just his body? If it's the whole Christ, you're circumscribing the divinity. If it's just his body, you're separating the body from the divinity and all and all and all and that and that. Nothing is as grandiose as that. Um, uh, just uh, a, a general uh, repugnance uh, against all sacred images. And uh, a kind of a furious hatred against sacred art, basically. You know, it was you know, it was it was Old Testament uh, taken out of context and run riot. But yeah, we'll get into that more next week. So, did any of these shenanigans in the Eastern Empire have any uh, overflow into the Western Church at all, or was it? It was all focused in the East. All focused in the East. As a matter of fact, uh, I mean, it didn't even spill over into the other Eastern seas, uh, like uh, like Antioch or Alexandria or Jerusalem. They all agreed with Rome and repudiated this. They considered it. Look, nobody has ever talked about Melkite luck, but for once there was such a thing. When the Isaurian emperors took the throne and unleashed his persecution, we were under the control of the Muslims. We were spared. Ah. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no infiltrations into the West whatsoever. Yeah, Professor Marshner, could you comment uh, how much of this can be attributed to theological uh, viewpoints or disputes versus uh, Caesaro papist tendencies in, in, in Byzantium? Or did Caesaro papism actually aggravate what was originally started out, what originally started out as a theological issue? Um, well, it, it's difficult to know exactly how sincerely religious the Emperor Leo III was. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that he had a deeply held theological conviction that there was something wrong with the representation of sacred objects, sacred persons and God and so on. So um, that would mean that he had a, a theological basis for his complaint. But um, it was aggravated by his own despotic temperament. This was a guy who could not brook resistance. I'll smash them. I'll get them. They'll obey or else. Despotic temperament and the Caesaropapist uh, ideology that you mentioned. Because he thought that by virtue of being emperor, he was also somehow boss-in-chief of the church. Yeah. So, I mean... His 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 ideology. I mean, it didn't work exactly like the ideology of Henry VIII, but 
you know, he thought he had the right to uh, depose patriarchs at will, at whim, and set his own standard of orthodoxy. I'm sorry to say that there was some precedent for his Caesaral papist conduct, especially from my beloved Justinian, who in many respects was an SOB. <laughs> but anyway, Justinian kind of pioneered the idea that the emperor could be his own font of orthodoxy. But at least Justinian had some learning on his side. This guy had no education at all. Could barely read. Are we done? Yeah, one more. How was it explained away? Oh the depictions of sacred images on in the catacombs as you mentioned because you were saying during the Maccabean period was when it was discouraged to have images. So how did they explain away the earlier depictions in the catacombs and on the walls of the churches? Well, in Constantinople you didn't have the catacombs to look at. The town was too new. Okay? It had been basically a fishing village until the Emperor Constantine picked it because good strategic location to build a new capital there. So it, it didn't have very much Christian antiquity on the site. But as it was built, of course, uh, beautiful churches were, were built and they were decorated with icons and uh, uh, mosaics, okay? Um, and there was no explaining them away. You just had to say, well, uh, 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 corruption has crept in here. Um, <laughs> what, would, what, would, what would Leo the Isaurian have said if he ever set foot in Milan? There were church apses there that go all the way back to the fourth century. Glorious images of our Lord and Our Lady in mosaics in these apses. I mean, you have to say, bring forth the whitewash, I guess. But I mean, after all, heresies rarely have much in the way of historical consciousness. Okay? They don't respect the traditions of the church. Okay? All they have is a few scripture verses which they are determined to understand their way, and heaven help what hinders. And next week we're going to look at those script, uh, some of those scripture verses. Is that right, Dr. Marshner? In yeah. Exodus and so forth. I already mentioned them tonight. You want them again? Yeah, oh, yeah, because I don't bring yeah. their Bibles with them. Thank All you very right. much, Dr. Marshner. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>